Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. p.m. on the 21st of July, 1930, I was fishing off Tor Point at the north end of the loch and opposite the village of Dawes. The sound of splashing attracted our attention and approximately 600 yards away, we observed spray being flung into the air by some dark creature on the surface of the water. I'm convinced of the reality of the presence of a monster or more properly of a family of monsters in the loch. Firstly, because I myself saw a monster. Three considerable humps appeared in line in the water and moved obliquely at great speed in a northwesterly direction. I mention a family of monsters since it seems impossible for one to have survived for long. And since the evidence points to their being several. I have seen the monster five times in different parts of the loch. I have no idea what it is. I can only say that I have seen this very strange thing in the loch with my own eyes. I took two snaps, but they didn't come out. I saw the monster. I just saw him for a few seconds, like a big island in the water. Then he disappeared. I often look for him since, but I have never seen him. I was out on the balcony here with three friends and saw the monster in the water. It was a bright sunny day, and I got the surprise of my life. What I saw was its head and neck for 20 minutes moving from side to side. The sun's rays seemed to magnify the creature's eye. I saw a head appear. I really thought it was uh, a seal's head. But uh, the head rose right out to the water, about two feet. He seemed to be, he was, in fact, eating a, a fish. He put his head down to the water, and then I could see a hump rise, not very much above the water, and another hump behind that, not quite so large as the front hump. And as he was disappearing, the tail came out right in the air, you know, came right out of the water. I see. And tell me, Mr. McLean, when you saw the monster, were you afraid? I wasn't very sure. I knew it was a good story, something quite out of the ordinary. I puzzled my brains only on one point. In what word could I refer to the creature? At last, monster suggested itself. And that is how I introduced the Loch Ness Monster to the newspaper world.
Welcome back to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. It's great to have you with us for the legend of the Loch Ness Monster, which is known to many believers as Nessie. In this episode, we'll take you through the history of Loch Ness, discuss the sightings, reveal the hoaxes, and introduce you to the wide varieties of stories and human characters that combine to create a great story. Is there any truth to the legend of the Loch Ness Monster? My knowledge on the subject at the start is pretty much just the basics. For years, witnesses have been claiming that there is a large life form with a long neck and serpentine body, possibly a species of reptile thought to be extinct, living in a lake in Scotland called Loch Ness. Images come to mind, always in the form of blurred photographs and videos, of a narrow head and neck peering up above the surface like a periscope before disappearing for another thirty years along with cheesy shops and signs directing tourists to the nearest Nessie cruise boat, and all kinds of books, movies, documentaries, and TV series, even a detective show, all cashing in on Scotland's biggest tourist draw. Then there are the research boats, outfitted with the latest technical underwater scanning devices, as well as remote-controlled bathospheres capable of working and transmitting camera images from depths unimaginable 50 years ago. The competition to discover and prove beyond a doubt the existence of a huge extinct species is worthy of an Indiana Jones script, and no doubt fraught with millions of dollars in rewards. But no one has uncovered anything yet, leaving us to wonder if all this has been a product of overactive imaginations. And why not? The early 20th century was the age of discovery. Arthur Conan Doyle's 1912 bestseller, The Lost World, a story of a group of men who discover a remote plateau in South America teeming with Jurassic Age holdouts, and a story which we recently narrated chapter by chapter over at 1001 Stories for the Road podcast, was well received by a world which was experiencing the invention of flight, of automobiles, of the telephone, and electric appliances, and the discovery of thousands of new species of animals. Anything was possible. Today, in 2020, the world seems to know much more. There are believers and non-believers, as well as those who want to believe, but just need a little push over the edge. Without legends and mysteries, life can get pretty boring. Boris Johnson was recently quoted as saying that as a child, I wanted the Loch Ness Monster to be real, and he added, part of me still does. We live in a cynical world. Science has its place, and skeptics have their place. But there are still many things that neither can explain, leaving a big space for mysteries and wonder. A part of me hopes that they never find a Nessie, or a Bigfoot, or the edge of the universe, because with everything they discover and document, that world of wonder gets a little smaller each time. Scotland is the most northerly of the four parts of the United Kingdom, notably England, Wales, Northern Ireland, and Scotland, and it occupies about one-third of the island of Great Britain. The name Scotland derives from the Latin Scotia, land of the Scots, a Celtic people from Ireland who settled on the west coast of Great Britain about the 5th century CE. You'll often hear the name Caledonia applied to Scotland, and that comes from the Roman word Caledoni, which was their name for a tribe in the northern part of what is now Scotland, the only part of the UK that the Romans couldn't get a handle on. 
These Caledonians were tough cookies, costing the Romans 50,000 men in a number of efforts to dominate them, all of which failed. Lagness is a large, deep freshwater loch or lake in the Scottish Highlands located about 23 miles or 37 kilometers southwest of Inverness, and it carries a variety of freshwater fish from trout to catfish to freshwater salmon, as well as eels. It is murky thanks to a high peat content in the surrounding soil, and it's deep, up to 755 feet, or 230 meters deep to be exact. The deepest hole they found was 814 feet, but that was an anomaly. Loch Ness is connected to the sea by the River Ness, a six-mile-long waterway that flows from the northern end of Loch Ness through Loch Dockfor, then northeast to Inverness, then discharges into Bewley Firth, then Moray Firth, and then the North Sea. To get your bearings from there, look north and east, far enough, and you'll see Norway. Look north and west, and you'll see Iceland. Loch Ness is best known for the folklore surrounding what is popularly called the Loch Ness Monster, nicknamed Nessie, which surfaced in public interest in 1933 when a photograph showing its head above water was released to the public, spurring more sightings, photos, and videos in the coming years. And we'll get to all of those further on in this story, including the story of that infamous surgeon's photo, which appears on every Nessie layout you've ever seen. I really love the Scottish language, and if you were going to say the legend of Nessie with a Scottish accent, you'd have to say the legend of Nessie. As you can imagine, every sighting and every photo and video has been disputed by those who wear the mantle of scientist or informed skeptic, and rightly so. There have been hoaxers who, for a laugh and a smattering of short-lived attention, or in one case revenge, set the world of discovery back 100 years with each hoax they dreamed up. The earliest report of a monster in the vicinity of Loch Ness appears in The Life of St. Columba by Adamnan, written in the 6th century A.D. According to Adamnan, writing about a century after the events described, the Irish monk St. Columba, one of the Twelve Apostles of Ireland, was staying in the land of the Picts, another name for the Caledonians we just described, with his companions when he encountered local residents burying a man by the river Ness. They explained that the man was swimming in the river when he was attacked by a water beast, which mauled him and dragged him underwater. They tried to rescue him in a boat, but he was killed. Columbus sent a follower, Luigne Makumin, to swim across the river. The beast approached him, but, according to legend, Columba made the sign of a cross and said, Go no further. Do not touch the man. Go back at once. The creature stopped, as if it had been pulled back with ropes, and fled, and Columba's men and the Picts gave thanks for what they perceived as a miracle. The first modern discussion of a sighting of a strange creature in the loch may have been in the 1870s, when D. Mackenzie claimed to have seen something wriggling and churning up the water. This account was not published until 1934, however, and no doubt others were ignored as well. In 1933, a new road along the lake shore was completed, which offered a large variety of lake views and helped to bring more tourists to Loch Ness, tourists who stopped often to admire the natural beauty of the lake, and many of them had cameras. When pictures of a strange long-necked beast hit the Inverness Courier, 
There was a mad rush there to check the back files for old stories, and out they came. The best-known article that first attracted a great deal of attention about a creature was published on May 2, 1933, in that newspaper, about a large beast or whale-like fish. The article by Alex Campbell, water bailiff for Loch Ness and a part-time journalist, discussed a sighting by Aldi McKay of an enormous creature with the body of a whale rolling in the water in the loch while she and her husband John were driving on the A-82 on April 15, 1933. The word monster was reportedly applied for the first time there in Campbell's article, although some reports claim that it was coined by editor Evan Barron. The Courier in 2017 published excerpts from the Campbell article, which had been titled, Strange Spectacle in Loch Ness. It read, The creature disported itself, rolling and plunging for fully a minute, its body resembling that of a whale, and the water cascading and churning like a simmering cauldron. Soon, however, it disappeared in a boiling mass of foam. Both onlookers confessed that there was something uncanny about the whole thing, for they realized that here was no ordinary denizen of the depths, because, apart from its enormous size, the beast, in taking the final plunge, sent out waves that were big enough to have been caused by a passing steamer. So the article read. According to a 2013 article, McKay said that she had yelled, Stop! The Beast! when viewing the spectacle. In the late 1980s, a naturalist interviewed Aldi McKay, and she admitted to knowing that there had been an oral tradition of a beast in the lock well before her claimed sighting. Alex Campbell's 1933 article also stated that Loch Ness has for generations been credited with being the home of a fearsome-looking monster. On August 4, 1933, the Courier published a report of another alleged sighting. This one was claimed by Londoner George Spicer, the head of a firm of tailors. Several weeks earlier, while they were driving around the lock, he and his wife saw the nearest approach to a dragon or prehistoric animal that I've ever seen in my life, trundling across the road toward the lock with an animal in its mouth. He described it as having a long neck which moved up and down in the manner of a scenic railway. He said the body was fairly big, with a high back, but if there were any feet, they must have been of the web kind. And as for a tail, I cannot say, as it moved so rapidly. And when we got to the spot, it had probably disappeared into the lock. Letters began appearing in the courier, often anonymously, claiming land or water sightings by the writer, their family, or acquaintances, or remembered stories. The accounts reached the media which described a monster fish, sea serpent, or dragon, and eventually settled on the Loch Ness Monster. Over the years, various hoaxes were also perpetrated, usually proven by photographs which were later debunked. Hugh Gray's photograph taken near Foyers on November 12, 1933, was the first photograph alleged to depict the monster. I have looked at the photograph, and the best I can say is that it's something in the water, very possibly a large fish, possibly an otter rolling, maybe a seal. It's hard to say. But it's a stretch to say it's a long-necked mammal that witnesses describe as looking like a plesiosaur, which was how it was described. I'll also tell you that the image has been studied in hundreds of ways, and that there are endless essays written about it, covering everything from Hugh Gray's reputation as an upstanding member of the community 
to effects of sun position and shadow upon whatever it was he was trying to photograph. Here is Gray's account. Four Sundays ago after church, I went for my usual walk near where the river enters the lock. The lock was like a mill pond and the sun shining brightly. An object of considerable dimensions rose out of the water not very far from where I was. I immediately got my camera ready and snapped the object which was two or three feet above the surface of the water. I did not see any head, for what I took to be the front parts were under the water, but there was considerable movement from what seemed to be the tail, the part furthest from me. The object only appeared for a few minutes and then sank out of sight. What did he see? Could have been a lot of things. We'll return to our show right after this message from our sponsor. And now, back to our show. Then there was the Arthur Grant sighting in 1934. On January 5, 1934, a motorcyclist, Arthur Grant, claimed to have nearly hit the creature while approaching Abrishan, near the northeastern end of the lock, at about 1 a.m. on a moonlit night. According to Grant, the creature had a small head attached to a long neck. The creature saw him and crossed the road back to the lock. Grant, a veterinary student, described it as a cross between a seal and a plesiosaur. He said he dismounted and followed it to the lock, but saw only ripples. Plesiosaurs, by the way, have been extinct for millions of years. Fossil remains tell us they grew to 35 feet in length and were mouth breathers, meaning they had to constantly stay near the surface, which would make them hard to miss today, and their necks did not come straight up through the water. Grant produced a sketch of the creature which was examined by zoologist Maurice Burton, who said that it was consistent with the appearance and behavior of an otter. Regarding the long size of the creature reported by Grant, it has been suggested that this was a faulty observation due to the poor light conditions. Paleontologist Darren Nash has suggested that Grant may have seen either an otter or a seal and exaggerated his sighting over time. The mention of a seal really caught my attention, for that's what Gray's picture represented to me. And guess what? Common harbor seals have been spotted in Loch Ness. There's a report on that out there, an abstract written by Gordon R. Williamson, which includes mention of reports of seals in Loch Ness in 1933 and 1934, and again through following years. There are fairly regular occurrence. Most are common harbor seals, with an occasional gray seal, which has more of a pointed nose. They spend most of their time underwater, but do surface to play and roll. They come up the river Ness from the sea and have been seen and noted by fishermen. These fishermen are salmon fishermen, and the salmon fishermen see the seals as a threat to their business. The seals follow the salmon boats, knowing that their nets trap salmon in them. The seals rob salmon from the nets. The fishermen have been known to shoot them to keep them away from their nets and stop them from ruining their harvest. Scotland has laws that are set up to regulate the killing of seals, but not much has been done to prevent the salmon fisheries from killing them. A Norwegian outfit called Marine Harvest operates 25 salmon fisheries in Scotland. A 2010 Marine Act was originally hailed as an improvement, but still allows a license to kill seals, and it's described as a seal management program. Why any management of seal populations is needed would be the next logical question because they certainly don't seem to be overpopulating Loch Ness. 
As many as five seals at a time have been spotted in groups, following each other in the same manner as dolphins, if you've ever seen that. The sight of their backs, one behind the other, rolling across the water as they swim, makes you think, doesn't it? There is a great picture we're posting to our Facebook page. This picture credited to Ian Bremen of three seals frolicking in Loch Ness. The head of the first one is visible. And then, a few feet behind him, we see a curved back, and behind the second, a third. They're frolicking one behind the other in a wavy diving pattern. It looks exactly like you might picture a sea serpent. Check it out. I put it up on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash 1001heroes. The only thing missing is that long, upright neck and head from that picture of Nessie that we're so familiar with. And speaking of that picture, that was called The Surgeon's Photograph from 1934. And that's on our Facebook page, 1001 Heroes, as well. The Surgeon's Photograph is reportedly the first photo of the creature's head and neck, supposedly taken by Robert Kenneth Wilson, a London gynecologist. It was published in the Daily Mail on April 21, 1934. Wilson's refusal to have his name associated with it led it to be known as the surgeon's photograph. According to Wilson, he was looking at the lock when he saw the monster, grabbed his camera, and snapped four photos. Only two exposures came out clearly. The first reportedly shows a small head and back, and the second shows a similar head in a diving position. The first photo became well known. You've all seen it. A narrow head and neck, and a little of the back sticking upright from the water. The second picture attracted little publicity because of its blurriness. For 60 years, the photo was considered evidence of the monster's existence, although skeptics dismissed it as driftwood, an elephant, an otter, or a bird, which doesn't say much for the skeptics because it looks like none of these. The photo's scale was controversial. It's often shown cropped, making the creature seem large and the ripples like waves, while the uncropped shot shows the other end of the lock and the monster in the center. The ripples in the photo were found to fit the size and pattern of small ripples, rather than large waves photographed up close. Analysis of the original image fostered further doubt. In 1993, the makers of the Discovery Communications documentary Loch Ness Discovered analyzed the uncropped image and found a white object visible in every version of the photo, implying that it was on the negative. It was believed to be the cause of the ripples, as if the object was being towed, although the possibility of a blemish on the negative could not be ruled out. An analysis of the full photograph indicated that the object was small, about 60 to 90 centimeters, or 2 to 3 feet long. Since 1994, most agree that the photo was an elaborate hoax. It had been described as fake in a December 1975 Sunday Telegraph article that fell into obscurity. Details of how the photo was taken were published in the 1999 book Nessie, the Surgeon's Photograph Exposed, which contains a facsimile of the 1975 Sunday Telegraph article. The creature was reportedly a toy submarine built by Christian Sperling, the son-in-law of Marmaduke Wetherell. Wetherell, a British-African actor, producer, and director of silent films, had been publicly ridiculed by his employer, the Daily Mail, after he found Nessie's footprints that turned out to be a hoax. He had volunteered to capture Nessie and returned to the newspaper with plaster casts and photos of huge footprints which he said he had discovered at the lock. 
an expert looked at the footprints and identified them as belonging to a hippopotamus. Indeed, it was found out that Weatherall had obtained a large ceramic ashtray in the shape of a rhino footprint and had used that to make the footprints. The newspaper shamed him, and Weatherall sought revenge. To get revenge on the mail, Weatherall perpetrated his hoax with co-conspirator Sperling, who was a sculpture specialist. Ian Weatherall, his son, who bought the material for the fake, and Maurice Chambers, who was an insurance agent. The toy submarine was bought from F.W. Woolworths, and its head and neck were made from wood putty. After testing it in a local pond, the group went to Loch Ness, where Ian Weatherall took the photos near the Aldsay Tea House. When they heard a water bailiff approaching, Duke Weatherall sank the model with his foot, and it is presumably still somewhere in Loch Ness. Chambers gave the photographic plates to Wilson, a friend of his who enjoyed a good practical joke. Wilson brought the plates to Ogston's, an Inverness chemist, and gave them to George Morrison for development. He sold the first photo to the Daily Mail, which fell for the ruse, and announced that the monster had been photographed. Little is known of the second photo. It's often ignored by researchers who believe its quality too poor and its differences from the first photo too great to warrant analysis. It shows a head similar to the first photos, with a more turbulent wave pattern and possibly taken at a different time and location. The picture was probably taken when they tested the object at the local pond. If you look at the famous picture, you can see the ripples around the object clearly, as if they were only a few feet away, which they were. Then look at the small size of the beast, as if it was photographed a hundred yards away. If it was a large beast, it had to have been photographed a hundred yards away. It isn't hard to see that this is some kind of toy floating on the water close to the photographer, yet it fooled the newspaper and public for nearly 50 years. On August 15, 1938, William Fraser, chief constable of Invernessshire, wrote a letter that the monster existed beyond doubt and expressed concern about a hunting party which had arrived with a custom-made harpoon gun, determined to catch the monster, dead or alive. Fraser believed his power to protect the monster from the hunters was very doubtful. In the letter, written in August of that year, to the Undersecretary of State in the Scottish office, Mr. Fraser revealed his strong desire to safeguard Nessie from the steady stream of trophy merchants and glory seekers headed his way and urged the minister to ensure the preservation of the monster. Mr. Fraser, who led the force until 1951, described a London couple, Peter Kent and Marion Sterling, who were, quote, determined to catch the monster dead or alive, end quote. They planned to have a special harpoon gun made and intended to return with 20 experienced men the following week for the purpose of hunting down the monster. Mr. Fraser said that there is some strange fish creature in Loch Ness seems now beyond doubt, but that the police have any power to protect it is very doubtful. I have, however, caused Mr. Peter Kent to be warned of the desirability of having the creature left alone, but whether my warning will have the desired effect or not remains to be seen. Just another part of the Loch Ness legend. Then there was the Dinsdale film of 1960. Aeronautical engineer Tim Dinsdale filmed a hump which left a wake crossing Loch Ness that year. Dinsdale, who reportedly had the sighting on his final day of search, described it as reddish with a blotch on its side. He said that when he mounted his camera, 
the object began to move, and he shot 40 feet of film. According to investigators, the object was probably animate. In 1993, Discovery Communications produced a documentary, Loch Ness Discovered, with a digital enhancement of the Dinsdale film. A person who enhanced the film noticed a shadow in the negative, which was not obvious in the developed film. By enhancing and overlaying frames, he found what appeared to be the rear body of a creature underwater. Before I saw the film, I thought the Loch Ness Monster was a load of rubbish. Having done the enhancement, I'm not so sure. Our next Nessie witness should come up under the discussion of what constitutes a reliable witness. On May 21, 1977, Anthony Doc Shields, camping next to Urquhart Castle, took, quote, some of the clearest pictures of the monster until this day, end quote. Shields, a magician and psychic, claimed to have mentally summoned the animal out of the water using his psychic powers. He later described it as an elephant squid, claiming the long neck shown in the photograph is actually the squid's trunk and that a white spot at the base of the neck is its eye. Due to the lack of ripples, it has been declared a hoax by a number of people and received its name because of its staged look. You may have guessed it, like a Muppet. Which Muppet? The writer didn't mention. But I can tell you that this guy, Doc Shields, was, is, a real character. Born in 1938, Anthony Doc Shields is best known as an author, artist, magician, and first-class huckster. He had several solo art exhibitions in London before then leaving St. Ives following a drunken incident in which he threatened police with a gun that he had obtained from painter friend Terry Frost. He was taught stage magic by his father and grandfather and wrote articles for the Linking Ring and the Budget Magazines, articles which included interviews with Ray Bradbury and Ray Harryhausen, in addition to publishing three books on magic, the first book named Thirteen, then Something Strange, then Demons, Darklings, and Doppelgangers. Doppelgangers are lookalikes, for those of you who might be new to the word. They say everybody has a doppelganger. But back to our nutball Nessie witness. Between 1970 and 74, he performed as Doc Shields, Wizard of the West, at festivals and fairs in Cornwall. This, presented with the help of friend Vernon Rose and the rest of the Shields family, was a magic show that incorporated illusions such as the Headless Woman, the Subdrunk, and the Buzzsaw. We can only hope these were truly illusions. In 1975, he set up Tom Fool's Theater of Tomfoolery, which started as a troupe of mummers, before working closely with the famous Footsbarn Theater. In 1976, he was involved with a series of monster-raising exploits, which brought him extensive media coverage, particularly when he started invoking the monsters with the help of a coven of nude witches. I'm going to need a minute to stop laughing. Okay. His attempts to raise Morgar, the Cornish sea monster, were covered by BBC TV, Fortean Times, local newspapers, and appeared in national newspapers such as the Reveille and News of the World. At around the same time, he reported on sightings of the now legendary Owlman of Maunen. In 1977, he obtained photos claimed to be of the Loch Ness Monster, which appeared on the front page of the Mirror newspaper. This and his associated Monster Mind experiment appeared in numerous other media outlets, including the Daily Telegraph and Radio One's Newsbeat. Alongside the monster raising, Shields continued to perform both as Doc Shields and as a member of the Tom Fool's Theater, 
and he wrote several plays, including Spooks, The Gallivant Variations, Night Jars, Clouthole, The Winking Curtain, and Dr. Beak Hides His Hands. During this period, and in the years since, he continued to paint and have exhibitions. He considers himself an artist first and foremost, and his life's work to be a form of surrealism that he refers to as Surreal Comedy. He has entered near the top of my list of Loch Ness characters, but he has no doubt helped to build the story around the Loch Ness legend. Since the 1950s, Loch Ness has been photographed, searched, and scanned by every type of electronic equipment imaginable, and with no sign of Nessie. There are hundreds of examples of blurred photos and videos showing what were probably either floating logs, shadows, wakes, boats, deer swimming, otters, seals, or waterfowl. We won't go into those here. There were some important surveys done that do bear mention. Dr. Gordon Tucker's sonar study in 1967 installed a sonar transducer with a range of 2,600 feet at Temple Pier in Urquhart Bay and directed its pattern across the lock, the goal being to capture any underwater movement through the lock at that point. During the two-week trial in August, multiple targets were identified. One was probably a shoal of fish, but others moved in a way not typical of shoals at speeds up to 10 knots. Overall, the study didn't tell us much. The Robert Rhines sonar studies between 2002 and 2008 were inconclusive and created controversy when some pictures showing fins were admittedly retouched. Later efforts showed very murky photos of what appeared to be large animals with gargoyle heads, but as you might expect, too murky to be sure. Then there was Operation Deep Scan in 1987. 24 boats equipped with echo-sounding equipment were deployed across the width of the lock and simultaneously sent acoustic waves. According to BBC News, the scientists had made sonar contact with an unidentified object of unusual size and strength. The researchers returned, rescanning the area. Analysis of the echo sounder images seemed to indicate debris at the bottom of the lock, although there was motion in three of the pictures. Loch Ness spokesman and researcher Adrian Shine speculated, based on size, that they might be seals which had entered the lock. Sonar expert Daryl Lawrence, founder of Lawrence Electronics, donated a number of echo sounder units used in the operation. After examining a sonar return indicating a large, moving object at a depth of 180 meters, which is 590 feet, near Urquhart Bay, Lorant said, There's something here that we don't understand, and there's something here that's larger than a fish. Maybe some species that hasn't been detected before? I don't know. A DNA survey in 2018 indicated no presence of any large fish, and concluded by stating, we can be fairly sure that there is probably not a giant scaly reptile swimming around Loch Ness. We'll return to our show right after this message from our sponsor. And now, back to our show. So where does all this leave us? For answer to that question, we contacted one of the foremost authorities on Loch Ness, Tony Harmsworth. Tony is a known science fiction author and maintains an excellent Loch Ness monster website at Loch hyphen ness.org. That's lock, L-O-C-H, dash, ness, N-E-S-S, dot org. He has also authored an excellent book called Lock Ness Understood, in which he exposes a web of fakes and hoaxes and pseudoscience 
that surrounds the search for the Loch Ness Monster. Tony also researched, staged, and co-founded the Loch Ness Center in 1980. In addition to that, he staged the Loch Ness Diorama in Fort Augustus, at the south end of the loch, and scripted the Loch Ness Story documentary. In my research, I often saw his name mentioned at the same time with that of Adrian Schein, who appears in a number of documentaries and who also deserves credit for trying to maintain a scientific standard for all things Loch Ness. On Tony Harmsworth's website, it is mentioned that, quote, as he cleared away the dross, he discovered that there is a credible mystery being played out in the depths of Loch Ness, and I'm hoping that Tony can explain just what that mystery is and what we can learn from Loch Ness. Tony Harmsworth, it's great to have you with us today. Nice to see you, John. Just what is that credible mystery, and what can we learn from Loch Ness? Well, you really have to go back in time quite a long way to to get to the root of it. You have to uh, realize that I was a believer in something like a plesiosaur in Loch Ness. I I thought that was the way the evidence was pointing. That's back in the 1970s. Uh, Mm I set up the Loch Ness Center. And something interesting, John, if you write a book, you're protected. No one can get at you. If you set up an exhibition, they can get at you. <laughs> they can ask to see you. They want to tell you what their opinion is all the time. And when we opened the doors of the exhibition, we discovered within a matter of a week or so that uh, eight or ten pieces of evidence we had were known faked photographs and hoaxes. So I had to go through a sharp learning curve, uh, and that learning curve really took me about eight or nine years. Explain a little bit of what you learned about some of those photos and how they were revealed to you as hoaxes. Well, if we go past the very first early days, um, I discovered that there was a, an expedition at Loch Ness which was being run by Adrian Schein who's a fellow of the Royal Geographic Society. And uh, I went round to see him. And at that meeting, uh, his uh, evidence advisor showed me how the flipper photographs, that's the underwater pictures taken by Dr. Robert Rhines in the 1970s, how they could have been faked. Now, they weren't saying they were faked. But what uh, Ricky Gardner, the evidence analyst, had done was he'd taken a piece of polythene laid it in the water, and photographed it. And it looked all the world just like the flipper photographs. But we later discovered that, in fact, those photographs were were retouched somewhere in the United States before they were published. So they were actually real fakes. They weren't just accidental fakes. Uh, Because you do get those as well. that That was really hard for me, because the flipper photographs had always been... Uh, the key to the Loch Ness Monster, as far as I was concerned. And discovering that they weren't real, it really knocked my confidence. Um, And Adrian Schein, in addition, we decided to give him money for his research. And he started helping with the exhibition. And we redesigned it, taking a slightly more sceptical approach to it. Not, Not hugely, but slightly. And I learned so much more through that association with Adrian Schein. And we started to look at each of the bits of evidence. Now, what comes out of all of this is that you have uh, a very deep, steep-sided 
flat bottom block here. It's very, very steep. And it's uh, 700 feet deep. And over at Loch Morar on the west coast of Scotland, where they also have a tradition of a monster, Adrian Shine knew the water was very clear. So he decided to go there and see if they could solve the mystery of the stroke. And they used a small submersible to look upwards towards the surface. And anything swimming over would have moved through, the, would have given a silhouette of what shape it was. They got nothing. They also tried un underwater cameras facing up. Then they started using sonar in a more effective way. Um, but they discovered that Loch Morar was not good for sonar because it had underwater hills and valleys and the sonar could ping on the slopes and get false returns. So that's when they'd come back to Loch Ness and that was 1981. And every time they did expeditions, they got strong sonar contacts that appeared to be in the deep water. <clears throat> this is at Mora or at, Lake, or at Loch Ness? Loch Ness. Mm -hmm. um, and Adrian was always very skeptical about his own work. He felt that he had to challenge everything he did himself. So after two years of getting these patrols up and down the deep basin, they then decided to try a fixed position in the loch let the monster come to them. He was worried that as they passed over maybe some debris in the loch, uh, they might be picking it up on sonar and it looks like a monster. So with a stationary position, they got fewer contacts. But you would expect that because if the monster is real, it wouldn't come close to something that's going ping every 25 seconds. So, uh, so Adrian wasn't too worried about that. But he felt that they needed a, a much more scientific study of the loch, find out more about the flora and fauna, and maybe that would show in the background something big living there. And so the whole expedition, all the expeditions from that point on, really changed, apart from Ryan's, really changed direction and moved forward in a scientific way, trying to use pure science to try and answer the mystery. So they were studying algae, they were studying uh, uh, DNA, they were doing soil samples. Uh, they found out that because of the lack of sunlight that there's very little algae that grows in there, which then that does not promote the growth of the organic life that you usually find near algae. Is that accurate to say? Right. You have a very dark water. It's uh, peat stained. Peat is a decomposed sphagnum moss which covers the, the hillsides around Loch Ness, and the water, uh, the water filters through it, and you get a sort of tea-like stain. So the water was very dark. So in the, in the shallow regions, um, you have this very dark water. You lose all light at about 20, 30 feet, um, and so very little algae grows. So the phytoplankton that live off that are in sparse supply. So the zooplankton that live off them are in sparse numbers. And uh, so the, the trout and the eels and the other bigger fish in Loch Ness are not there in huge volumes. Loch Ness is not a productive lake at all. Um, so anything that was going to be in there, you could look at the food chain and try and work out how much weight of monster could be surviving off the potential food that's in the loch. And I, I can't remember the exact figure now, but I think the figure was three tons. Now, with three tons, if you've got a, a giant Nessie, that would just about do it. So um, if, you, 
<laughs> but you have to have a breeding community, presumably, unless this <laughs> thing's been there since, since the last ice age. So um, three tons of, of, of food is not a great deal. But there, when you start to look at the candidates for the monster, it starts to point you in the direction that leads you towards a conclusion. So if you look at them, let's go one, plesiosaur, say, for instance. Long-necked, prehistoric aquatic reptile. Not a dinosaur, it was an aquatic reptile. It has a long neck which had vertebrae along the neck, which prevented it from putting its neck upwards. So all these pictures and sightings of something doing this through the log, it's nonsense. It can't be a presiosaur anyway. You can rule it out. Secondly, it has it, it breathes air. So it would be there, you know, I'm looking out of the window now, I should be able to see it all the time. So you have lots of things against the plesiosaur. So then you move on, what's the next best option? Mammal? Well, mammals breathe air. And, and so you would see them at the surface much more often, like seals. Um, Gordon Williamson, for instance, tracked seals in Loch Ness, and uh, uh, salmon fishermen have, have traditionally they've shot them because they eat salmon. But they're, they're very, very rare they come into the loch. So rare that I've lived here over 40 years overlooking the loch. I've never seen one in Loch Ness. So it doesn't happen very often. I, I'm, I, was, I was reading the same thing in my research. It was interesting that in that report, he did say that in 33 and 34, there were a number of seal sightings, and then it was spotty throughout the years. Then again, in the mid-80s, uh, there were more. And there's also been some pictures uh, taken within the past 30, 40 years. Again, they're not common in the lock, but there's two types. There's the common harbor seal, and then there's the gray seal. The gray seal being a little bit bigger and having more of a pointed nose. But it's, it, it, it seemed to me that in many cases of where people identified something in the water or even something crossing the road with something in its mouth, that there was a possibility that that could be a seal. Uh, I was wondering where you come on that, if you kind of agree with that or not. Well, first of all, you can rule out all the land sightings. They've all been de um, determined by anybody who's sensible that they were all either hoaxes or faked. So um, forget the land sightings. If something was roaming around on the land here, there would not be a mystery. This, this, this lock is only 23 miles long. You know, there's only 50 miles of road around it. <laughs> so forget, forget land sightings. But if you look at an aquatic animal like a seal swimming at the surface, the amount of the seal you see at the surface is very, very small. It's only about a third or less. So you'd need several seals swimming together to give any impression of a monster. So I don't think the seals has anything to do with this. There might have been a few cases, perhaps in 33 and 34, that were caused by seals. But I, I dismiss it. But that's, that's us dealt with mammals. There are other categories as well. Yeah, there's a wild vowel. In fact, you had a sighting yourself that you were convinced for a long time was the possibility of of an unknown mammal or reptile. Uh, how did that line up? Well, I came out of the house um, on the morning of the trials for Operation Deep Scan. Uh, they didn't have the full 20 boats, they just had five or six boats. And I'd loaned um, Adrian Shine's wife all my photographic equipment because she was taking publicity pictures. 
And I came out of the house and saw something in the water. I picked up my binoculars. Have you heard that the window washer always has the dirtiest window? <laughs> well, this yeah. monster hunter, my binoculars had only one eye working. Anyway, I looked at this thing and it was bigger than it was without them. <laughs> so I ran inside, grabbed my wife's Canon Sure Shot, one of these little cameras, and out I went, click, 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 click. And I thought, oh, how m- any film in here? How much film? I looked down and it said 23. So I thought, what is it, 24 or 36? Right. I didn't know. I looked up and it had gone completely. Now, when we were later, I had those photographs developed under Bond via Adrian Shine so that they couldn't be tampered with. But when we got them back, Adrian was looking at them and he says, why didn't you take the last few photographs? I said, I don't know. And I thought it, thought it back and I said, oh, I remember. I, I looked at the counter, looked that up and gone. And Adrian said to me, ah, yes, Tony, that's when it flew away. <laughs> and I do think I probably saw a group of ducks. It's amazing <laughs> you on this lock, you know. Several times I've looked at it in a hurry and thought, oh, what's that? And within seconds, you know what it is, especially if you live here for a long time. But if we go back beyond those air breathers, you know, you've got other categories as well. There's invertebrates giant squid and you've got amphibians some sort of big amphibian well the squid you can rule out because Loch Ness is freshwater and the only way in is from the sea so how could they move from salt to freshwater they can't there's no known large invertebrate that can do that Uh, so that rules those out and then you have the amphibians well they cannot tolerate salt water so the only way they could have come in was on eggs on the legs of diving birds and such like, well, they're not going to produce a huge animal. And, and slowly I realized that I, this whole story was heading in one direction. And then one day at a barbecue up here at this house, Adrian Shine told me about a fish, a particular fish. It's called a sturgeon. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, And he said, you know, I think it could have been a sturgeon. Well, I didn't think too much about that at the time. But later on, I was running a bus tour. I I did some guided tours. I fell out with the owner of the Loch Ness Centre and left. And I did some guided tours where I had on the side of the bus, the only place you'll find the truth is in this bus. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, we'd go along the lock and I'd tell people the the story of the lock. And one day I had no passengers. I was sitting in Inverness Library the Encyclopedia Britannica was sitting behind me, and I suddenly stopped what I was doing. Oh, I'll look up sturgeon. So I pulled it out, looked through, and I discovered something amazing. The world record sturgeon was 27 feet long. That's a big boy. <laughs> no doubt about it. And that, but they live for hundreds of years. I'm told there are fishermen from Seattle who've got the bony plates from the side of the gill of the sturgeon that have rings in there going way over 300. Wow. And they grow a new ring each year. Now, we don't have saltwater, um, we don't have the, um, the, the American sturgeon here, the huge uh, sturgeon in here, the, and the Russian sturgeon. But we do know that at one point in the past. Caviar. Yes, caviar, that's right. One point in the past, sturgeon were introduced to, to one of the Scottish locks 
that feeds into LogNet. Now, it is possible a freshwater sturgeon could have swum down and ended up in LogNet and just grew bigger and bigger and bigger. And maybe it's still out there even now. It could be, you know, if it's 200 years. So that's one possible solution. And that's why there is still, I'm still not 100% certain that there is a monster or not. Because it's still, until someone can get rid of the sturgeon as a possible candidate, then that could be the answer. And let's face it, if you saw a 27-foot sturgeon come to the surface here, that is a monster. <laughs> and it would be serious. Uh, they have this rather interesting back as well, sort of, sort of ridgy sort of back. It looks a little bit reptilian. So I think that's probably where the answer is going. And, you know, I'm talking to you about this frankly and openly. And some people have said, I'm destroying the tourist industry. Nobody wants to come to Loch Ness if there's no monster. And, and I did think about that seriously when I, when I wrote my book. I, I thought, well, what should I do about the sturgeon at the end? By the way, there's loads and loads of pictures. All the pictures are in there. Um, I thought, what should I do about the sturgeon? Am I destroying the tourist industry? And I tried to imagine in my mind what would happen if they pulled out a 20-foot-long sturgeon at Loch Ness. Well, this is what I think would happen. The chairman of the Scottish Tourist Board, in full kilt and regalia, would grab a helicopter ride up to Loch Ness. All the press would be descending on the area because they know there's something on the beach that they're not allowed to look at. And the chairman of the Scottish Tourist Board would walk down beside it and all the press with their cameras and he'll say, well, everybody, we finally have the answer to this great mystery at Loch Ness. And he pulls back the sheath covering this sturgeon and says, at last we know what it eats. <laughs> That's a good anecdote. <laughs> Enjoy that a lot. That's you, very you, good. You can't, you can't kill Nessie. It's impossible to kill Nessie. Nessie will always be there. Uh, without me, without you, without your program, without your podcast, Nessie, there'll always be a Nessie. And there'll always be people who disbelieve in it based on too little information and people who believe in it based on too little information. And it's, it's almost like a conspiracy theory when you talk to some of the fanatics. Uh, but there's still, what Adrian Shine says, there is still a case to answer. Well, thank you. I appreciate your feedback on that and your stories and your anecdotes. Excellent. Enjoyed it a lot. Did you ever get to meet Anthony Doc Shields? We did. No, we, thank goodness. We did. Yeah, we did a bunch of paragraphs on him. He's a, he was a case. He was one of the characters yeah, that contribute to the legend. Is how I I kind of pictured him. Yeah. Tim Dinsdale was a very important figure. Now, the Dinsdale film was taken in 1960, uh, so that's, what, 50 years ago? No, 60 years ago. Mm -hmm. And uh, Tim Dinsdale borrowed a movie camera, came up, and took uh, some film of something crossing the log, apparently submerging and moving parallel to the far shore, and then he lost sight of it. And that film became the basis upon which the Loch Ness Investigation Bureau was begun. So he was a very important figure in this whole Loch Ness scene. He wrote a very excellent book um, uh, called 
I think just Loch Ness Monster, I think it was. Um, so Tim Dinsdale was an interesting guy. Now, one day, um, Tim would never let his film be shown. It uh, was shown once on television in the 50s. I missed it. He wouldn't let me show it in the exhibition. He said it would be a bit like a peak box if it was done that way. He, um, I said, well, give me some stills then. So he gave me some still photographs and we used those. But one day um, I, was, I came across an American documentary, a horrible, dreadful thing it was. It was all filmed in salt water. There were sea anemones and things in Loch Ness. <laughs> and, uh, but in it, they had the film. Heaven knows where they got it from. We think it might have been from a copy made by Disney that was never allowed to be used. Anyway, we were up at the house here watching this film, and uh, there's the object moving through the water, and Ricky Gardner, the evidence committee guy I told you about earlier, he was um, watching. He said, no, 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 that's not, not the uh, monster. That's the boat sequence. Because Tim went out and filmed a boat on the same course at the later stage as a comparison. And Adrian said, ah, that's what it is, it's the boat. Because we see a man sitting at the back of the boat. Right. And then a seagull flew through the scene. And Adrian says, that's the seagull. And we dived for my bookcase. And I had a couple of copies of Tim's book and we were working through the book. Which sequence was the seagull in? The boat or the monster? Ah. It was monster sequence. How? was this seagull there and this man in a boat going along. And my television at the time had the contrast very, very high. And the contrast was picking out these pixels at the back of the boat of a man sitting there. Tim had made a mistake. We're sure he didn't do it deliberately, but we're certain he filmed a boat by mistake. Yes. Immediately after that, he stopped having money... Um, sent to the Loch Ness research from him, from the rights to his film and stills. He asked for them to be sent to the NSPCC, that's the National Society for Prevention of Cruelty to Children. His whole attitude changed, and we think he may have realised, but decided to say nothing because it could have spoiled the work that was going on at Loch Ness. It's still argued over to this day, but we can prove conclusively that he, um, he found a boat. It was an outboard engine. It was more like a skiff. And as I recall, the guy was sitting right on the stern with his hand, with one hand on the arm of the outboard. We right. see them all the time. Yeah. It's just in particular lighting conditions, you couldn't see the boat. You could only see the wave because the water was the same color as the boat. Yeah. So it did look like it's an object moving through water. I lived, I've lived in Virginia Beach for a good 40 years, and we're used to seeing dolphins here and the, and the pattern that the dolphins play. When they play, they often play one right behind the other, and they break water at the same time. It's almost, it's like it's choreographed. And in the case of dolphins, you have a, a gray dorsal fin there with the dolphin. So you see the door, you see three dorsal fins break in the water at the same time. It's actually three dolphins, and they always play in line with each other, almost like geese and ducks fly in a V. I think they do the same thing in the water. Otters do, and seals do, and dolphins do in order to uh, ease that path uh, for the following, for the ones that are behind. And usually the ones that are behind the younger ones. And there was an excellent picture. I was trying to find his name while we were talking. But there was an, there's an excellent picture taken just off of uh, uh, Urquhart Castle. 
of three seals. Their, their backs, the first one, the head was out of the water on the first guy. The second guy was, uh, his back, just a little bit of his back was visible, maybe two feet, three feet behind that. And then two, three feet behind him, a third with his back visible. And to, to any eye, because you've got a head and now you've got two curving backs, it looks exactly one, like one might see a serpentine body of a sea monster. And it was an excellent, excellent picture that really sold that. Um, I thought that was interesting. And I can see how... I've seen otters play like that. I haven't, seen, I haven't been close enough to seals, but I've seen otters play like that, and that's exactly what it looks like. So my thinking is that maybe some of those sightings were seals during the rare times that uh, seals uh, visit at Loch Ness before leaving Possibly. again. Possibly. You have to remember that uh, because it is Loch Ness, anything unusual at all is going to make people say, oh, what's that? And there used to be a man back in the uh, uh, Loch Ness Bureau days, so 1960s, a man called Muir, who used to sit at the castle, and as tourists came along, He'd, he'd went until they were looking away and said, oh, what was that? Did you see that? And they said, what, a sort of straight coming to the wall? No, no, didn't see it. Look, I can't leave here because my wife's somewhere in a castle. Will you go and tell the Loch Ness Bureau that you've seen something? And he used to send people along there with nonsense stories. <laughs> but if you're looking at Loch Ness and you suddenly see a dark shape, quite often it's what's called a windrow, where the pattern of water is changed slightly by the wind and you get this black, sinuous shape moving through the water. That happens quite often. And also boat wakes. Boat wakes in a narrow lock like this, they, they can leave you seeing a wake long after the boat has disappeared. But there could still be something here. Uh, one thing I wanted to mention, earlier on you mentioned DNA. Yes. I don't know very much about that DNA expedition, except that most of the items they got they couldn't identify. So that doesn't help at all, because Nessie could be one of those items they couldn't identify. From, so, um, from what I understand, that, they, couldn't, they couldn't identify any large fish DNA. That's how I, that's how I read that study. They were looking for, even for sturgeon. Uh, and the only thing they could really find was eel DNA, and they found that all over the place. Uh, they couldn't identify yes. any, any large creatures, any large fish. Dick Rayner was, I think it was Dick Rayner who was telling me that uh, they didn't actually um, find any sturgeon. They didn't actually find one or two other fish, Arctic char, who were present. Yeah. So, you know, it, it just seems, it seems like it wasn't a very reliable um, expedition. It probably needed following up. This is the trouble that with, the, with the scientific expedition. The money runs out, and it stops, and quite often they should be able to go on and, and continue. Uh, but right now, there's no real expeditions going on at Loch Ness. Adrian Shine is working with a number of universities here, and they're continuing to study the, the loch because it's a fascinating place. It is just so magnificent. I mean, can you see it out there? I can see it. How about that? Thanks for turning your computer. Uh, to our listeners, I'm looking at the loch uh, from Tony's uh, mountain beautiful. home here above the loch. It's um, extremely beautiful, uh, and it's got vegetation around, lots of trees and forests, which makes it interesting. It's on a geological fault line, a side slip fault, so it did 
did that about 400 million years ago. So you have a, an unusual shape, this trench. There is more water in Loch Ness than all the lakes, all the rivers, and all the reservoirs of England and Wales combined in this <laughs> one body of water. We ought to sell it to the English. <laughs> There's got to be some great trout so, fishing in there. What's the largest trout that's ever come out of the lock? Do you know? Um, well, I do know the... Uh, well, salmon go up to about 54 pounds. Ooh, nice. Uh, uh, but an interesting thing, my, my friend, who's now long dead, so he won't mind if I tell you this story, he used to poach salmon, he used to go out with a net, he and his, his buddy. And uh, one day they'd send all these salmon off to Aberdeen where they would be smoked and then sold into various hotels around the area. And the guy on the, from Aberdeen rings Angie, he says, Angie, one of those fish you sent me was a trout. And Angie said, can't have been, they were all over 25 pounds. <laughs> and the guy says, well, I tell you, it was, I've just smoked it. Wow. So over 25 pounds. The current record, I think, is 22. Okay. So Angie, wow. Angie's poacher had the largest trout there was ever in Loch Ness. <laughs> there's, always a, there's always a bigger fish. And so if we find any sturgeon in Loch Ness, there'll always be a bigger one. I did a lot of research on um, early Virginia and the discoveries of, of John Smith and the group that came over in 1607. And at one point in his writings, and he wrote a lot, he said that James River was so full of sturgeon, you could have walked across it on their backs. They did not like that today. Sturgeons are rare, rarely seen, rarely caught. Uh, but back then, tremendous quantities of them. Just interesting history, how things change over a couple centuries. Yes, we do get the European sturgeon in coastal waters here. Uh, but that's, that's a saltwater fish. It would only come into somewhere like Loch Ness to breed. It would, wouldn't stay. So it would come in and go. And Adrian Shine thinks that Mrs. Mackay, the famous sighting in 1933 of something breaking the surface, he thinks she may have seen a migrating sturgeon. But this possibility, say, of sturgeon being brought over, freshwater sturgeon from the United States, until somebody proves to me that's not possible, then I will continue to think that is a possible solution here. Mm -hmm. Would yep. be nice to know. If you go to my Facebook page, you'll find albums there, and you're very welcome to take any pictures. Just give a credit to Tony Armstrong if you want to use a picture or anything like that. And what is your There's Facebook page for our listeners? Yeah, Loch Ness Tony. Loch Ness Tony. Okay. Yep. All lowercase. All, all lowercase and no spaces and go into the photographs and then go to views and then look for the uh the sorry into albums and then look for views that's where you'll find the pictures okay thank you appreciate that oh i do have one question for you how much of scotland's tourism uh makes it to Loch Ness? what do you guys draw percentage-wise any idea or ideas in the number of people right now i can tell you exactly Zero. <laughs> <laughs> because because you shut down due to the virus? We're in lockdown. Yeah. Um, but uh, tourism... Um, You're going to change the name from Loch Ness to Lockdown then. Yes, that's right. The Lockdown Monster. <laughs> yeah. um, the, tourism, uh, if you take away a government 
jobs like police, um, hospitals, uh, and um, administration. What's left? Tourism is the biggest industry in the north of Scotland. Oh, yeah. It's far oh, yeah. larger than oil or uh, farming or agriculture, forestry, any of those. Uh, it's, so tourism is the biggest. And, uh, quite frankly, I don't know how we're going to, tourism-wise, how they're going to come out of this lockdown because, um, I, I don't know, this keeping two metres apart is never going to work for any of the small boats on Loch Ness. It's never going to work for any of the restaurants and cafes. It's, I don't know what they're going to do. It's just well, a shame. What, how, how pervasive has the virus been there in Scotland and in the UK? I'm Scotland's way up uh, in the north. I'm just, I'm just thinking you guys must be yeah. barely nothing. Well, we, we do, we are, we are getting cases. Um, I think there's, uh, I'm, I'm, it's a slightly a guess, but I think it's about 2,000 dead in Scotland, uh, 32,000 in, in Britain so yeah, far. Yeah. But, um, I mean, we have a, a man who does a little bit of work for us occasionally. He was up in the house today. He had it and his wife had it in the village. Mm. And we know of another person in the village who's got it and still another who thought it was okay to go shopping. We're surviving. We, we um, use a system called Click and Collect to go for our shopping. You place the order online and you go and collect it. It's all packed up for you. Yeah. And yeah. Um, yeah. so yeah. very rarely have to meet anybody. But it's fish and chips. I miss fish and chips. But, yeah. but you miss fish and chips. Now, what happened to Arthur Treacher? Is he, is he still up there in the U.K.? You didn't. You, don't, you didn't have Arthur Treacher's fish and chips. We we always figured he was from your part of the country. So now I know the truth. There there is no Arthur Treacher. Okay. Uh, well, um, there used to be a guy, a guy called Harry Ramsden, who was quite famous fish and chip in in Britain. But no. How about <laughs> how about the Colonel's fried chicken? Do you have that in Scotland? Oh, we get it in Inverness. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> if we want it. Yes. The, the golden ear in there as well. This is like this is like a cultural exchange we're having here. This is great. I'm finding out all about Scotland. So, what it, what is special about Inverness? Is that um, is that Formula One or is it horse racing? What what's the big draw for Inverness? Just a beautiful city. Okay. Quite frankly, it's a lovely city on the River Ness. Um, it's uh, the capital of the Highlands. It's the head uh, central administration for the whole of the Highlands. Um, and it's a very beautiful place just to walk along the riverside. I used to drive from he from here into Inverness every day to go running around the river. Ah. So, you know, that's how, that's how lovely it was. Tony, I know you're a very successful science fiction writer as well. Would you like to share a couple of your books and how people can find them? Certainly. Uh, well, it's Tony Harmsworth, author. I'm on Amazon or harmsworth.net finds my books. Um, and I write what's called hard science fiction. So there's a lot of fact in it. Uh, I mean, usually there has to be something in there which is not fact, which makes it interesting, like an alien popping up or whatever. But, uh, my, but if you read, for instance, my book called The Visitor, which has been a bestseller in the UK, um, it's all about an alien object that is found in Earth orbit by somebody working at the International Space Station. So it's that sort of feel to it. You, you don't have to go light years away. There's no beam me up, Scotty, or anything of that nature. 
Uh, so it's very, it's hard science fiction, high tech science fiction. And I've also written one called The Door, which plays a bit with time travel, oh, yeah. but not in the classic oh, yeah. way. Tony, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for sharing a little bit about Loch Ness with us. We appreciate it very much. I wish you the best of luck out there. Thank you very much and good luck to you. Okay, bye-bye. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks for joining us, everyone, at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. We very much appreciate our Patreon supporters who send a little bit every month to us at patreon.com forward slash 1001 Stories Network. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash 1001 Stories Network. And we appreciate your sharing our show with others, letting them know in some cases what podcasts are and recommending our 1001 shows. And we also appreciate reviews. And here's a few new ones for you. The first one, five stars. Fantastic. Just listened to all three of the Battle of the Little Bighorn episodes and thoroughly enjoyed them. It's apparent the host has a great grasp of the material and he knows how to relate it in a compelling way. Well done. That one from Urban Moving, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, not interested, five stars. There are some things about which I care not a whit. UFO stories, baseball stories, obscure naval battles. These are the things I have thoroughly enjoyed on this podcast. UFO stories, baseball stories, obscure naval battles. I have been dragged, unwittingly, mind you, into broadening the depth of my character. Thanks, John, for the great job. I came for the classic short stories and stayed for Shoeless Joe. Who'd have thunk it? <laughs> that one from Thaddeus Von Awesome, Apple Podcast U.S. Thank you, Thaddeus. And this one, Truth About History, five stars. I love it. He will tell it like it was and not back down to the culture of political correctness. Finally, a history podcast that's in the center and not left-leaning. Thank you. That one from Diesel Tuned, Apple Podcast U.S. And this one, very entertaining, five stars. I'm always looking forward to the next episode. Well laid out and historically accurate. Thanks for all the great shows. That one from Merrill Felker, Apple Podcast U.S. Thank you, Merrill. And this one, five stars, the best content available for inquiring minds. I've listened to lots of good podcast hosts and presenters, but none of them retain my attention like John Hagedorn with his 1001 Stories Network. I thoroughly enjoy the variety of topics that he covers because they're extremely well-researched and narrated. I especially enjoy his commentary. He has a natural radio voice that captures the attention of his audience with excellent inflection, pausing, and other speaking attributes which make him, in my opinion, one of the best podcast hosts and presenters available today. I recently started downloading his Stories for the Road series and find them very entertaining. One of them, by Agatha Christie, showed his ability to assume a character's persona. His mimicry of accents was spot on. His 1001 Stories Network has a plethora of topics for everyone to enjoy. Listening in will bring you back to the days of radio shows from eons ago. Remember when the AM stations used to broadcast stories and shows at night? Well, you can get that and more at any time of the day. I hope you folks enjoy listening to John present as many shows as much as I do. Kay, that one from Kay Pinkerton, Apple Podcast, U.S. Thank you so very much. Thanks to all of you for listening and for sharing our show. We appreciate it. Everyone stay safe. And we'll be back next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time with a brand new 1001 Heroes. And be sure to tune into our other shows, 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, where you're always sure to find a good Sherlock Holmes story. 
1001 Greatest Love Stories, 1001 Stories for the Road, where you can catch our chapter-by-chapter narration of stories like Treasure Island and The Lost World by Arthur Conan Doyle, and 1001 Radio Days, where, like our last reviewer said, you can catch up on some of the great radio shows from the 40s and 50s, like Dragnet and Bonanza and many others. And if, you, and if you're ever looking for a single website that can deliver all of our different shows to you at one website, it's 1001storiespodcast.com. We've also got it synced to 1001storiesnetwork.com. So join us and enjoy. <laughs> 